Welcome to another Hotel Analyst podcast, uh, another in our occasional series where we uh, quiz someone in the sector. And today we've got with us uh, Simon Allison, the Chief Executive of Hoftel, the Hotel Owners Alliance. I'm going to pass straight over to uh, my partner in crime here, Andrew Sankster, the Editorial Director of Hotel Analyst, who can start asking Simon the juicy questions. Thanks, Chris. Um, Simon, welcome to the show. Um, I'd like to I'd like to start off um, with the news, um, which is I'm sure I've got many of your uh, members chatting, um, which is this this action by Minor International um, against Marriott, and they put out a press release in the middle of um, October. Um, that they were going to start doing uh, new legal action. Now, before I get you to answer that, we'll just set the scene a little bit for the listeners in terms of what Hoftel is, because um, there may be some out there who are not entirely clear. But yeah, I quite like it when you describe Hoftel as the trade union for hotel owners. Um, is, is that a good way of portraying it? Well, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we're, we're something of a capitalist body because we are all, by definition, investors in hospitality real estate. Um, uh, but yes, I mean, we uh, our feeling is more like a members club. And, you know, we have Chatham House rules in our private meetings and we talk confidentially about issues that are bothering owners of, of all different sorts of issues. But... Uh, essentially we're a club where owners who pay fees to brands or get rent from brands uh, can get together and chat about the world and you have to you have to be a brand partner to be a member so we're not there for independent hoteliers uh, they need on at least one property to have a third party operator franchisor or lessee uh, but essentially it, it is a club where about a hundred billion dollars worth of, of hospitality real estate gets together and chats about the world right and how long have you been going now simon it was founded actually at the Berlin Conference in 2005, I think, so quite a while now. Wow. Uh, okay, so you're uh, coming uh, up for your 20th, not quite 20th. Not but quite, right. but we're, we're getting Get there. on the way. You're certainly there. well yes. into the second decade anyway of yes. it. So, yes, um, and over the course, I mean, one of the things I, I would say writing about the sector is that there's been a swing in that pendulum, um, perhaps away from the big brand companies who sort of dominated everything. Um, I think one of the lines I've always liked you um, using is where you say it's a very unusual situation where you have the owners of capital actually in thrall to the managers of the capital which seems to have been the case with the hotel sector and it is and my perception is certainly that the pendulum swung back more towards owners would that be fair yes and no i would say uh, i think owners are far more aware of what questions they need to be asking uh, some of the bigger owners are in a position where they can if not dictate terms then at least push back pretty strongly but still the big brands keep getting bigger uh, their loyalty programs keep getting more powerful. Their ability to reduce OTA commissions are substantial. And certainly in the US, if you want to build a, a mid-scale or upscale hotel without one of them, you're probably going to find it hard to get financing. So although the owners have pushed back, uh, I still think the position of the big brands is, is pretty strong. And as I think we'll probably go on to talk about, they've they found new ways of levying charges on owners, which I think most owners are probably not even aware are happening. And, you know, the, the reason the big brand share prices keep going up is because they keep finding new ways to make money. <laughs> um, and in, in terms of what we were talking about uh, 
getting you on the uh, on the podcast to discuss uh, specifically today or at least allude to is this i mean it's unusual for these disputes to get aired in public isn't it most of this stuff happens behind the scenes there's a bit of argy bargy uh, quite a few crosswords but to get to the point where you've got a big company uh, mint making this public statement against uh, uh, the biggest hotel brand company marriott that's pretty unusual isn't it well, it is. Um, I mean, look, it's it's unusual as well in that Mint is actually also a major operator of hotels as well, both with Minor out of Thailand and with NH out of Spain. So, you know, it, it, it may not be the purpose of the action, but it doesn't hurt to, to air dirty uh, washing about Marriott in public for them uh, from a strategic perspective. But, you know, interestingly, a lot of the points they're raising in this lawsuit... Uh, obviously in their home base of Thailand, where the legal position might be a bit different. But a lot of the points they're raising are points that a lot of owners would be having concerns about already. So uh, I think it's actually some quite useful airing of some controversies that the industry needs to think about. Mm. Uh, can you highlight uh, some of those for us? Well, I think there are, there are three things that the latest press release talks about. I mean, there's more bullet points, but there's really three things. One of them is competition and areas of protection. So the fact that when they opened the JW Marriott in, in Phuket, I, I think they may have been the only Marriott on the island, or they were certainly one of not very many. And now there are multiple different hotels under the Marriott flag, uh, which they see as competing with them uh, in a way unfairly. And, and perhaps, I don't know what they're going to claim, but it, it seems they might be saying that they're using data that this hotel generates, which in practice then benefits the other hotels. Um, and that comes on to, to the second issue they raise, which is really fiduciary duty. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and there are different levels of care that you can have, and I think fiduciary is the strongest. And it basically says if you're looking after someone's assets, you have to do it purely on their behalf, almost like you know your pension fund administrator would look after your pension. So it's a very strict duty of care. And then you've got agency, which is which is similar in some jurisdictions, a bit weaker in others, as I understand it. Uh, but still basically says you have to look after someone's money as though it were your own and you're acting on their behalf, not yours. And they're two concepts that the big brands try to get out of their management agreements and basically say, look, we're just a service provider. Um, but my understanding is in some jurisdictions, and Thailand may in fact be one of them, you can't fully disclaim it. So if you're in the position where effectively you're looking after someone's assets, you have a duty of care towards them, whatever the contract says. And I suspect Miner is going to want to uh, to explore that. Yeah. Uh, and the last one is the loyalty programs. And I, I think we're going to talk about that a bit later, Andrew. But the, uh, the loyalty programs are obviously the brand's most powerful tool for convincing owners and guests uh, that, they should, that they should use that brand and sign up to that brand. Uh, but I think some questions need to be asked about whether those loyalty programs do, in fact, uh, exist purely for the benefit uh, economically of the hotels that sign up to them or whether the brands are, in fact, taking some benefit out of them. Just taking that last point first, I mean, the line from the brand codes is that uh, um, if we win, you win as the owner. That's the argument they put forward. We've, we're seeing off. I mean, it was astonished me in terms of how they were trying to take on the um, um, OTAs, the uh, online travel agents, mm -hmm. and um, they. they essentially they were getting the owners to pay for that battle by giving discounts to anybody who was a member of the 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 loyalty scheme and the argument was actually um if, if we if we win against the um otas you're going to win in the long term so mr owner um you know come on sign up for this this campaign with us 
Yes, and I mean, look, the argument of the brands is that it's all about getting direct bookings, and with the loyalty programs you get, at least you know via our systems, you get direct bookings. Um, don't get me wrong, I think the loyalty programs are very useful. I do believe that they influence people. Um, now, a lot of people have multiple loyalty cards, so they're not really loyalty programs, they're points programs. In fact, they could probably be called disloyalty programs, because <laughs> I don't think when you go into the supermarket and you buy your, 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 your tub of haagen you know, you buy six, get two free. It doesn't work that way most of the time. So they're there because the brands actually aren't distinctive enough in some cases and need to lure people in with these points. Um, but where I think there's, there's a difficulty with the argument is that by the time you... Uh, you pay a 5% or 4% fee to the brand for the loyal guest. And then you're giving the loyal guest potentially a 5% discount on the rate. And then you're still paying the, band, the brand's GDS fees. And then maybe you're giving the loyal members some, some benefits, which could be meaningful in, in, in value terms, free breakfast, executive lounge upgrades, whatever. Um, at some point, it's not entirely clear that the, the cost of acquiring a, a guest from the loyalty program is dramatically different from the cost of an OTA booking. And so, uh, while I do think the loyalty programs do help to direct guests, uh, I don't think that the, the key argument that, that they're the cheapest form of guest is always uh, accurate. Yeah, that, that cost of acquisition thing, uh, I think there's been a, quite a few studies on that that shows that uh, OTAs are in, sometimes the actual the cheapest route to, to, to guest well, acquisition. Well, you say that, I, I haven't seen very much. I, I, I've heard of the existence of these studies, and I know there's one professor down in New Zealand who's kind of the guru. But <laughs> actually, there's almost nothing in the public domain about loyalty programs from the perspective of owners. Um uh, or if you know it, please share it, because because our members are very keen to see it, actually. Um, but but what's been interesting about the loyalty programs, if, if I can change tack very slightly here, is that over the last year, we've seen the brands uh, basically raising funds off the back of them. You know, we saw that was it a billion dollars, I think, that, that Hilton raised from the, the pre-sale of points on the, mm -hmm. the, the Amex mm -hmm. card. Uh, and I think a lot of owners are scratching their heads and going, well, how, firstly, how does that work? Uh, and, and it works, I understand, because every time uh, a customer uses a Hilton-branded Amex card, Hilton get a franchise fee. Only a small one, but they get something. And so obviously that's a massive receivables program coming in, which they securitized last year. But then I think owners are going, well, hang on a minute. Okay, so are we seeing the benefit of that? Because this program is supposedly for us. Uh, it's not meant to be a profit center in the brands. And obviously the brands have multiple partners for these these cards, these loyalty cards, you know, rent a car and, and flights and so on. So there is a lack of transparency as to where those pots of money are going and whether if, uh, you know, the brand then does, uh, for example, a credit card program, do, does any of that go back into the owner's pool or is it treated separately? Uh, I think the only big brand company which explicitly says that their loyalty program is not for profit, I may be wrong on this, but I think it's IHG. And I don't yeah. think any of the others have explicitly said that. No, I think they're a lot more transparent about their system funds as well, aren't they? In terms of they where are. they go, yes, they and, are. And, and 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 that's something which you've you're obviously campaigning for, or would like to see from the the other brands is a bit more transparency in terms of those system funds to ensure that that we haven't got this situation where there are hidden charges, as it were, because on top of the um, the management fees, um, which you know, uh, which may be two and ten or three and ten or whatever, however they uh, are structured 
structured you've got these other chargebacks coming in as well and that's what the, so the total cost of um you know flying the flag of the brand to the owner can be quite significantly more than the owner actually initially anticipates well that that's been the biggest issue for our members i would say over the past few months i think last year it was all hands on deck everyone was in it together hotels were closed so there was no revenue to to argue about and, and how it got distributed was irrelevant because it was zero uh, this year what you're seeing is owners are opening up their hotels and they're starting to get you know top line revenue which means they're paying fees and they're paying these recharges and they may still be losing money and it's normal at this point in the cycle. I mean, I've seen, you know, the, the recoveries in the 80s, the 90s and the noughties and now. So we're, we're all used to it, uh, you know, and post the GFC. Uh, so this is the moment in time when owners are really sharpening their pencils about costs. But I have to say, I think this is probably the biggest issue facing brands in their in their management contract structures, because owners are waking up to the fact that. And I, I, you know, I have to be careful how I say this, but it, it begins to feel as though almost everything is now getting recharged to the point where the management fee really doesn't cover anything at all. Uh, everything is, is additional. And, you know, I, our members have been, have been chatting to me and I, you might be interested in some anecdotal examples I've been given. I obviously can't say where they came from or which brand they refer to. But, you know, as an example, uh, one brand, apparently, it costs more than £4,000 per hotel per year to be involved in the uh, engagement survey, the, the, the employee engagement survey. Uh, another example we heard was that if one of your employees loses their password and calls the brand call centre to get a new one, it's $12 per call. Wow. Um, <laughs> another one is a, the annual ethics program, which is charged out at five thousand dollars per hotel. <laughs> and the best one I heard of all, and, and again, this is this is this is from a while ago, so I don't know. Uh, this is a brand that got taken over, so it may not be true anymore. But if a guest called the call center or the head office to complain about a hotel, um, the call center would charge the hotel two hundred dollars for sorting out the complaint. Now, given that the brand is managing the hotel. Uh, to charge the hotel back for its own incompetence is, is truly extraordinary. So <laughs> you, you do have to ask, you know, what is the management fee for if it isn't actually for managing the hotel? And th the number of these charges is now extraordinary. I don't think most owners have the first clue how many different places in the P&L the brand can levy some sort of program fee charge back program system annual this trip annual this survey to, to the point where you know we're talking i mean we're, you know, we're literally talking hundreds of thousands of pounds per hotel uh, and over and above the management fee these issues are predominantly with management contracts are they or are franchise um, agreements also uh, problematic well, they can be, and, and, and let's not kid ourselves that there aren't a lot of sales and marketing and distribution-based charges because there are. But uh, certainly for, for most of the big brands, if they're, if they're doing franchising in the States, there's actually a legally uh, binding disclosure document which is out there and which is publicly available. So they have to be transparent. Now, uh, my understanding is some of them are extremely large documents and you have to wade your way through them. So a lot of owners may not, again, have actually gone into detail about what's out there. Uh, but we can't accuse the brands of not being transparent because because it's there if you can be bothered to look for it. Right, right. So uh, the upshot of that is actually that franchising from an owner's perspective, um, if they can uh, sort out the management aspect of it, perhaps through a third party manager, that is possibly a better way forward. Would, would, you, would you agree? 
Uh, I would say so, yes. I mean, it's interesting. The topics you, you, you've raised with me today, uh, you know, we, we have our annual Gulf and Indian Ocean Hotel Investor Summit coming up in the UAE in, in three weeks, which I think, Andrew, you're, you're kind enough to come out and moderate a session for Indeed. us. Indeed. Uh, and a lot of these topics are coming up. I mean, we're talking about recharges. We're talking about loyalty programs. We're talking about the move to franchising. And we're talking about the rise of white label operators. So all those issues are very much to the fore. And, uh, you know, I had a big shock a few weeks ago when one of our members, which is arguably the most institutional of all of them, said that they were actually setting up their own management company, not going for white label, uh, but actually gradually probably going to roll that out among over their portfolio. And it, it does suggest that even the most conservative owners are starting to go, you know what, if, we, if we're capable of running a, port, a small portfolio, we, we, we're increasingly going to look at doing that ourselves. I mean, this is something which we're writing about um, I mean, in terms of the, the broader real estate sector as well, the, the notion of operational real estate, the, the, the notion of getting involved in the operating cash flows as well as just the, the, the real estate cash flows. So this, you know, we've seen this with the likes of Schroeder's, other institutional investors setting up their own operating wings. And this is what's happening here with one of your members as well. Well, well and, and I think the, the other thing, which you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about management agreements, particularly in the UK, but if you look at the lease world, uh, you know, particularly, for, for example, for the German funds, uh, in a market where you really, really can't renege on your lease, uh, they suddenly had to scratch their heads and go, actually, if there's no money, there's no money. And we really are exposed to the risk of the operation, whatever the lease says, if the lessee goes bust, it's back in our lap. And I think that's been a big shock and a, and a salutary reminder that this is a, a business that sells by the night. So mm. I think across the whole spectrum, there's, there's an awareness that hands-on management is vital. Mm. Do, do you think that COVID um, and the whole series of lockdowns have had a result of COVID, um, as we merge out of that, has that changed attitudes amongst owners? Do, do you sense that? Or is it really that it's just highlighted a few things that are already in place? I think it's accelerated and highlighted. Uh, you know, some owners were complaining that the big brands, particularly run from far away, had not been responsive. I have to say, to be fair, in other cases, a number of brands were singled out as having been very responsive, including some of the biggest ones. So I don't think it was it was as much that. I, I do think what it's highlighted, uh, certainly for our members, because we, we did a survey on this, is the inconsistency in the way brands treat their owners you know we did a survey and it's all anonymized so we can't we can't name anything because like str we we, we promised to keep it confidential uh, but we did a survey of how the brands had reacted to their owners requests on covid on a whole range of things were they waiving or deferring fees were they letting owners use the money in their ffne reserve to stave off bankruptcy were they making owners contribute to the ffne reserve what were they doing with pips were they charging fees on covid direct covid business by which i mean you know key worker housing and quarantine and that kind of thing and what was fascinating was that there were not just differences between the big brand families, but within the big brand families. So yeah. owners were not being treated consistently at all. Now, so if, if, if you had a, uh, you know, a Marriott and if you had a, a, um, a Fairfield, there'd be differences between how you got treated. Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily between this. And look, we, we, we don't even know this, whether it's between different brands within the brand families or just between different regions or, or whether it's really just which owner has, has, has a more powerful voice or which owner is more desperate. So the brands will turn around and say, look, we've been we've been we've been kind. You know, we've we've waived some of our rules. We've bent over backwards to help the owners. And, you know, everyone should be grateful that we were willing to do that. 
other owners might say, well, hang on, you did it for them, but you didn't do it for us. So how does that work? Because this is meant to be standard stuff. So I think that also raises a question of, okay, if it isn't completely transparent and completely standard, then how do I really know where I sit in this hierarchy? And I think that feeling of insecurity is filtered down as well and, and, and maybe prompting some of these moves. Mm. Just projecting forward as we draw to, to the uh, close of our session today simon just projecting forward i mean what's your hopes and aspirations um well what are your members hopes and aspirations for how this might move forward and how the relationships with the brands might be improved what are some of the key steps that you think that can be taken to improve those relationships I mean, generally, I have to say our, our members, however, however much they may dig and however much they may be dissatisfied with some things they find, they're, they're still mostly big advocates of having a brand on their hotel. And they recognize the power of the big brands and what they can do for them. So, uh, you know, the, the desire for transparency is pretty overwhelming now. And I think any brand that starts to move towards full disclosure of what they're charging and, and frankly the uniform system of accounts should reflect this you know there should be an overall line item for that but i think if owners can see what they're being charged and then understand why they're being charged it and make sure that if it's sold to them as a standard program that everyone else is doing the same i think that will help a lot but nonetheless I think the more nimble ones will want to to go to either a white label operator or to their own management increasingly because once they feel they can do it that they're going to get rid of the overhead that comes with the, the big systems so i think that's where they want to go but but i also think if some brands start to move towards greater transparency they will be big winners right right great so Clearly, then, it's a vote in favour of franchising. We're seeing a big trend away from management contracts, to be fair. Um, you know, Most of the big brands now seem to be geared up for the franchising push. So that, that's a clear trend you're going to see um, for the for the future. Um, so much more of this is going to be um, talked about at the forthcoming conference you mentioned there. Just give us the URL for that, Simon. Okay, so that's uh, geohist.com, G-I-O-H-I-S. Uh, it's on the 14th to the 16th of November in the United Arab Emirates, in, in the, the fast-growing Emirate of Ras al-Khaimah. And we have nearly 100 speakers. We will have, I think, over 100 speakers. And it's really a very owner-focused event. So these kind of topics will be discussed, along with many others. Simon, thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Chris.